Reis. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSlift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend. Tell family. Also, get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here. Truth and Rhythm shirts. Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership a founding member of a cornerstone act of the smooth jazz movement, Pieces of a Dream drummer, Curtis Harmon. As the first act signed to legendary saxophonist Grover Washington Jr.'s production company, the trio jumped off in the early 1980s with three foundational albums produced by Washington. Pieces of a Dream, which by the 2000s had pared down to a duo, has remained active in the studio and on stage consistently for the past 40 years including 19 albums of smooth jazz, funk, and R&B. Their most recent release was 2019's On Another Note. Curtis. Yes. Thank you. So how are you? How you doing, Scott? Doing very well, thank you. Hope you're doing the same. Um, so far, so good. I'm making it. I'm making it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I dig the setup. You got your uh, kit right behind you, and it uh, okay. looks like... Uh, keyboards over there and yeah that's my uh this is my new yamaha mo dx uh which is a fairly new keyboard on the market um and i actually still haven't figured out everything about it yet so but uh i'm working with it and uh it's, it's doing good um and this is my yamaha drum kit and i got this drum kit in 1983 uh, actually, Grover got the kit for me and got, uh, I was endorsing Yamaha at the time through Grover Washington. And um, this kit is in mint condition because I don't travel with it. So, <laughs> so it's, it's doing pretty good. But uh, it serves me well for practicing and, you know, other things. Yeah, so that's a little bit of the laboratory there, right? Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I got to, you know, thank you for being on the show. Much appreciated and uh, looking forward to looking forward to talking to you about uh, the whole story, really. So let's jump back, uh, go in the time machine a little bit. And, okay. uh, you know, I know you started really early playing. You're a bit of a, I don't know if a prodigy, but you certainly started early. So tell us how you first got into the drums um, and, and, you know, start, sort of in, uh, up into your teen years. Okay, well, I actually, um, the first instrument I actually wanted to play was guitar and could not get my fingers to do what I wanted them to do. <laughs> so I saw a drummer by the name of Bobby Durham, who was actually performing with my father's group. Um, and 
And I looked, I said, maybe I think I can do that. And uh, I actually had the coordination for drums. And, and mind you, this is I'm eight years old at this point. So I found that I had the coordination for drums. So I started just beating on everything around the house. And I was playing, uh, I remember I was playing on my brother's, my little brother's high chair at the time <laughs> with my mother's good silverware. And I was playing uh, Rare Earths Get Ready, mm. if you remember that song. <laughs> so my, my mother told my father, listen, uh, you better get up some drums before I kill you both. <laughs> He's using my good silverware to beat on his brother's chair with. So my father got me a toy set of drums and I beat the heck out of them, and then eventually he got me a real kit, and I started taking lessons around 10 years old. And um, then uh, I went to Ada Lewis Middle School. I guess I was about 12 years old in the sixth grade, and uh, and and I met where I met Cedric Napoleon. And then the very next year, we met James Lloyd, who was who came into the uh, band room just playing on the piano and he was playing Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille. I mean, and he was killing this song, <laughs> you know? And so we looked to see who it was. We thought it was some adult in there playing and a little 11-year-old kid is in there killing this song, man. And um, so we uh, were all part of the jazz band at the time, the middle school jazz band. And so we kind of broke off to do a, a talent show and there were six of us. There were three horns with us. Um, we only took third place in the talent show, but the three of us actually stayed together and started doing block parties and stuff. And then my father, uh, Danny Harmon, actually started managing us and getting us local gigs and dinner dances, nightclubs, uh, block parties and stuff like that. And um, we ended up becoming the studio band for a TV show called City Lights in Philadelphia. Uh, at the time, I think I was... 15 or 16. Uh, James may have been 14. Um, and Grover Washington was one of the guests on the show. So he came in ready to play behind his track, Mr. Magic, uh, and I think Let It Flow or Wine Light, one of them. And when he heard us play, he said, well, I want to play with them. <laughs> and so he asked us if we knew Mr. Magic, and we did. So we ended up playing that with him on the TV show. And then we ended up a couple of weeks later, playing at the Bijou Cafe, where he did his live album, and Grover walked in and surprised everybody and played with us. Surprised us, too, because we didn't know he was coming either. And performed with us and announced that he was starting a new production company and we were going to be his first product. Wow. And so, you were how old at that time? At that time, I was 17. And what kind of music were uh, you guys playing mostly uh, before you connected with Grover? A mix or? Uh, well, we were playing some straight ahead jazz because uh, we, we, uh, my father had us uh, listening to people like Ahmed Jamal, Three Sounds, MJQ, um, Count Basie, Oscar Peterson, uh, Milt Jackson, and people like that because uh, my father was a musician also. Uh, he played piano and vibes also. I'm third generation musician, so my grandfather was also a prof music professor at Temple University. So, um, but my father had us listen to all kinds of jazz stuff like that. And of course, being the ages we were, we liked Earth, Wind & Fire, Commodores, Gap Band, and, you know, uh, Parliament, Funkadelic, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So we were, we became a very versatile band that could just about play anything and open for anybody. So um, that's basically how we got our start. Wow. Um, so, yeah, music is deep in your family. What about in your bandmates? Do they also have musical or did they have musical uh, families? Actually, no. <laughs> none of them, uh, n not that I know of, neither one of their relatives play. Huh. Just just mine. But um, they both were very talented Uh for, you know, I think James's brother may have started off playing piano, but he quit soon after and James James stuck with it. So because I think their mother had them both to, into piano lessons. 
you mentioned your baby brother. I'm glad he wasn't in the high chair when you were playing it. <laughs> but, uh, no, and actually, he grew up and started playing bass. So, okay, so I was wondering if any of your siblings yeah, also My sister played flute in, uh, in middle school and high school. Uh, my brother played, he still plays bass uh, around the Philadelphia area. And uh, that's it. So talk to me a little bit about the Philly area. I mean, you came up not only in a great time for jazz and funk, but also in an area so rich in that heritage, too, in Philly. So what was it like yeah. coming up in that? Um, well, Philly was a mecca of music, as we you know, all know. Um, yeah, Gambling Huff, um, uh, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, uh, Harlan Oaks. You know, you had there were so many at Grover, Washington, of course, even though Grover's from Buffalo, he uh, resided in Philly. So, you know, so many acts, man, coming out. Of Frankie Philly. Beverly. Frankie Beverly and Mays, right? Yeah. Uh, Dexter Wenzel. Yeah, Dexter. Stanley who, Clark. Who actually uh, wrote and produced on our first two albums, Dexter Wenzel. So he wrote uh, One Weather along with Cynthia Biggs. And on the second album, he wrote a song called Please Don't Do This To Me, which the B side of that was Mount Airy Groove, which was a which is one of our biggest hits. And people were, uh, Please Don't Do This To Me got put out as the single. And then we got word that they were flipping the record over to Mount Airy Groove, <laughs> which is the song that we wrote ourselves. And uh, so Grover called us back in the studio and said, listen, um, we got to do a 12-inch on this record because <laughs> the DJs are flipping the record over and everybody's dancing to this Mount Every Groove. So, so we ended up doing that. And to this day, we can't get out of a concert without playing that song. <laughs> so. Wow. And it's because, sure, you never know, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, you people, never know what's going to hit. You people never decide. know what's going to hit. So, But... Uh, you, you that, and that was a song that came um, by accident. We were rehearsing in our studio and left the tape running. And when we and we started just you know messing around and jamming around, and when we played the tape back, parts of Mount Airy Groove was on that tape. What well, parts of what is now Mount Airy Groove was on that tape, and then we kind of shaped it and molded molded it into what it is now. So, and it ended up being one of our biggest records. <laughs> uh, Kurt, you mentioned the Bijou, and um, that's one of my favorite Grover Washington records, period. Just alive at the Bijou is so amazing. Right. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Did he record that before or after that you were playing with him there? Uh, he recorded that before we okay. were with him. Yeah. So, yeah, that was before. But that was... Uh, I mean, that was the Mr. Magic album, the album that Mr. Magic was on. And um, that song is iconic, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's been done over by R&B groups that have put other, like, put lyrics to it and put other things to the music. Um, and today, even when we play it, because we were a product of Grover's, you know, I also because we were part of Grover's band, you know, because uh, we would open up as pieces of a dream when we toured with him. And then we would also be in his rhythm section. So and at that time, instead of playing drums for him, I actually played percussion with Doc Gibbs. So, OK, and uh, his brother played drums. But, you know, he had all three of us in the band. And, you know, those were extraordinary times for us. Uh, times of learning, not, you know, not just fun, but it was, it was learning too, because Grover taught us a lot about how to play music and how to let it flow on stage. You know what I mean? And how to groove together with each other and look out for what the other person is playing and try to do your best to compliment it and not so much play over it. You know what I mean? Um, he was just a, uh, mecca of information where music was concerned uh, especially where when it became when it came to performance in and out of the studio so i never get tired of hearing mr matt you know there's certain tracks that 
cannot be worn out, in my opinion. I uh, know. <laughs> what's that? What's that? It's in, man. Forget it. Because um, one of my other ones is "Let It Flow," and I love that song too. Yes. And when we play that one, we kick that one. <laughs> we kick that hard. So, um, yeah, I had Doc Gibbs on the show a while back, and mm-hmm. um, you know, he and whoever else had worked with or talks about Grover just can't say enough about you know what a gentleman he was and just a class. Oh, actor. most definitely. Definitely, definitely. He was great to be around. You know, he treated us with nothing but respect. Um, you know, he treated us, even though we were kids, he treated us as men and expected us to act the part also. Because even though we were kids, he let us know that, you know, we are in this, we are professional. And so there's a certain amount of professionalism in our daily lives also that has to come with that. You know what I mean? So we can't be out getting in trouble and, you know, uh, acting acting a fool out there, <laughs> you know. And, you know, we kind of have to respect the name that we had acquired along with him. You know what I mean? So, and and we did, you know, we did. We uh, acted like we were supposed to. And, you know, around the country, you know, we, we did our job with him and we acted accordingly, so. You know, he was very proud of us. Who who are some of the drummers that you kind of uh, idolized or emulated early on? Early on, uh, well, from there were I guess two sets of group, two groups of drummers that I uh, liked um, on the jazz side of things. Um, Buddy Miles was one, uh, Mickey Roker, uh, Max Roach. Um, let me see, uh, Buddy Rich was one, actually I did, uh, we played a concert in Atlantic City and his band played and (laughs) we opened up and the whole time when he played, he was kind of looking at me like, look at this kid, you know, (laughs) but he he was funny though and I, I liked him a lot. Um, man, there's so many, uh. Philly Joe Jones, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of drummers on on that side, but on the other side, and in the there, you know, Steve Gadd is one of my favorites. Also, uh, he's the one that I kind of emulated myself after, as far as keeping a groove and keeping it nice, a nice tight pocket when I play, especially when somebody else is soloing or the melody is being played. You know, and when it comes to my time to solo, then I do what I feel like doing. But when I am actually in a background type of situation, then I try to keep the groove nice and tight so that the people in the audience listening are going like this. You know what I mean? They're bobbing their head and going, yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, Steve Gadd is one of the masters at that. And when I first heard him play, I was in awe of how controlled he was, how he controlled the rest of the band with how he played, with the pocket that he laid down. And to this day, that's one of my favorite things about him. And that's one of the favorite things that I try to emulate. Uh, I like Dennis Chambers, um, Billy Cobham, uh, Alphonse Mazon, uh, uh, Harvey Mason. Uh, I mean, I could sit here and name 100 drummers for you. But uh, those are those guys are some of my favorites. And you mentioned so on the jazz side, were you also going to cite some R and B or funk guys or? Um. Well, uh, I like Maurice White, Lenny White, um, Sugarfoot from the Ohio Players. Um, Sugar, you mean uh, Diamond? Yeah, I'm sorry, Diamond. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) from Ohio Players. I'm sorry. Um, Fat Larry, Fat Larry's man. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of them I like too. Uh, um, Ricky Lawson, who played with Michael Jackson for a while mm-hmm. before he died. Um, he was actually one of my favorite drummers, also. Uh, and there's guys who I don't even know their names. Uh, the, the drummer from Spyro Gyra, I like a lot. Um, and then, you know, the list goes on, man. Yeah. Yeah. 
So a lot of diverse uh, inspiration coming in. And um, what was it like to, um, you know, be up there with Grover as a as a um, as a player, you know, because he's one of my all time favorite players. Oh well, um, it's funny. Um, I mean, we were kids at the time, so it was fun to us. And then it got to a point where I would sometimes, you know, get nervous a little bit, you know. Um, and that wasn't actually until I got older that I would actually start to get nervous a little bit. And then, and I had been doing it for years already. And it's like, I'm looking out into the audience and then when you see the lights come on on stage, sometimes you got to think, you know, even though this started out as fun, it's like, wow, this is your profession now. This is what you do. This is how you pay your bills. And this is what you do to please people, all of these people that are out there listening and watching you. This is your God-given gift for them to, to enjoy, you know? And uh, so it's something I don't take for granted. You know, it's something that I, I treasure and that, you know, um, God has blessed me with the talent to do. And I recognize that. and. And love the fact that I'm able to share that with people. Yeah, and you drive the train. That's what the drums do. <laughs> hey, <You know? laughs> somebody's got to drive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the bass player is there to help you drive, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, no doubt, no doubt. And I definitely, you know, um, it's funny because uh, I, I play with an awesome bass player now, uh, David Dyson. Uh, he's out of the D.C. area, and he's played with a lot of people. Um, but he's become, you know, uh, and we didn't actually first start playing together in this in Pieces of a Dream. I was playing with a band in Washington, D.C. when I met him, and that's how we actually started playing together. But he and I have built a stage rapport where <clears throat> it's almost like we know what each other's going to do now. You know what I mean? Because he's been with my band now for over 10 years. And we we just click so well together. And it's definitely, I can say it's definitely two people driving that band when it comes to the rhythm of it. And he he's definitely a big help in, in the driver's seat. So, But he's a funky bass player, man. He is so talented, you know. That's my boy there. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Kurt, your first album came out in 81. Mm -hmm. uh, how long had you had the relationship with Grover Washington? How long did it take to get that first record out? Um, let me see. Uh, I guess the whole process was about maybe 10 months to a year. Um, we were in the studio for about three to four months, maybe. I mean, because, you know, the process of making the album is first, you know, you write some stuff and then he wrote a couple of things for us, but he wanted most the majority of the writing to come from us, you know, so he wrote some stuff, we wrote some stuff, then, you know, some other people, Dexter wrote a couple things and then uh, we had another guy, Eddie Green, who wrote some stuff and then we did a couple of remakes, you know, like um, Bedtime Story. Uh, All About Love from Earth, Wind & Fire. We did a swing version of that. Um, we did The Shadow of Your Smile on the third album. Uh, you know, so there were some other moving components in, in this whole process. But in the first album, I would say it took about eight to ten, in, in ten months to a year to, to get the whole process done uh, with the writing, the producing, the editing, the photo photography, you know, doing the album cover and all of that, pressing the records and all that. So, you know, it's a process. So, and so I would say, yeah, about 10 months to a year. But was Grover like a, a, a taskmaster in producing it or very laid back or, you know, did you have to do many takes? Um, no, he was very, he was pretty laid back. 
he knew what he wanted out of us, but he also knew he wanted us to have some input so that the production of the album would be a learning, not just, you know, we just sit back and watch him do everything, but it's a learning process for us. And while it's a hands-on learning process, okay? So, you know, he would ask us what we thought and then we would give our opinion on, you know, what we thought should, you know, the sound should be. And and then he had his idea. So we kind of came together on it. And he was very liberal where that was concerned. As long as we came out with a quality product, everybody was happy. It's definitely a quality product. So did you guys, uh, you know, who was like putting forward to do something like body uh, magic that would be like real funk mm-hmm. compared to doing the more jazz stuff? Okay, well, Body Magic was one of the ones that uh, we wrote as kids. Um, that was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was on the second album or third first, album. First, that's the first, first album. Yeah. You know, I need to have some of this stuff in front of me. I'm just trying to go from memory here, but uh, yeah, I got, I got you. And, and don't forget, this is like uh, about. 39 years ago, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no, no worries. Um, I got the advantage here. I have a list. So oh, okay. it, was, it, it was a closer on the first album. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, that's another song. That's one of the songs that we had put together. Um, when uh, I guess James was getting used, if, if you remember, synthesizers started becoming a big thing around that time. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Body Magic had a synthesizer melody, and um, and then the, the groove was uh, basically put together by Cedric and myself, and and then James had the whole melody thing going on. Um, that song is one of the songs that you know we were told to go in, you know, well get some stuff together and write some stuff. That was one of the songs that we came up with because we felt that the, that's a very 80s type groove if you if you listen to it. And um, that's basically, we wrote songs on how we felt and things we saw and, you know, just like today, you know, if, if when you go to write a song, there's, an, there's something that inspired that song, okay? Like, for instance, I was writing a song for... Um, this little thirteen-year-old kid we have playing for us now, Justin Lee Schultz. The uh, I was I started a song about a couple of weeks ago for him, and halfway through writing the song, I just crap canned it because I didn't like the way it was coming out. So I started the second song. I started another song for him, and this song was ex- came out great. <laughs> you know, this song came out really nice. So you know, sometimes when you're when you're writing certain moods hit you and then certain things don't. So, you know, Body Magic was one of those songs that we felt was a good song and Grover felt it was a good song. And so it it made the album. There are songs that didn't make the album. So, you know, there you go. Well, I like how, you know, when you came out with those three albums, I mean, you had a mix of funk and jazz and, um, you know, the second record, which you may not remember, uh, Yo Frat was like (laughs) another funky one. And, um, we, that was our college days. The Fa Fi Fo, of course, was. Fo Fi Fo? Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was for the Sixers when they won the championship. Moses Malone said they do it in Fo Fo Fo, and they did it in Fo Fi Fo. So that's how that happened. <laughs> so. So uh, they did it in four games, five games, and four games. Yeah. Was that the one against the Lakers? Um, it was the Lakers and two other teams, though. They won, I think, uh, it was the Boston, L.A., and Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, were those three uh, series. Okay. I was at um, the only playoff game I've ever been to in my life was at the LA Forum with the Lakers playing the Sixers in, the, in that finals. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Wow. I don't think I've ever been to a Sixers playoff game. I've been to a 
I think I've, I've been to an Eagles playoff game, but not a Sixers playoff game. <laughs> but yeah, I've uh, yeah, I've not been to a I've been to Sixers games, but not playoffs. So I had a friend who was a ticket scalper then, so it came in handy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, let's see. It's, I highlighted some of these tracks, uh, Curtis. So it's getting hot in here um, for the fun of it. And for the fun uh, of it was supposed to be the second Mount Airy group, <laughs> and but it didn't do as anywhere near as well as Mount Airy group did. So because <laughs> it had a little uh, scratch type thing on it too, like a record scratching type thing, but. Um, I think Mount Airy Groove uh, had its own niche and its own personality, and that song just kind of took off for us. So, so I look at the uh, Pieces of a Dream legacy as almost like five different phases you guys went through. You know, some of it sort of coincided with label changes and producer changes, but you guys have really gone through some different phases. And the first three records I see is the first phase with Grover. Right. Um, and, you know, at that time, who are some of the guys you guys went out on the road with? Were you meeting like a lot of other players and, and were you, you mean as far as players that were, are you talking about as, play, as far as players that were in our band or in other bands, um, bills that you shared and things like that? Oh, wow. Well, we actually toured a lot with, uh, Phyllis Hyman, hmm. Angela Bowfield. And uh, we were on a lot of shows with, uh, well, a few shows with Bill Withers, um, Dizzy Gillespie. We did a lot of shows with uh, Roy Ayers. Um, man, who else back there? Angela Bowfield. Roy Ayers, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, Angela Bowfield. Uh the Rippingtons, Hiroshima, um, and then on the other side of it, we did some gigs with a couple of gigs with Rick James. Um, who else? Uh, SWV. Uh, wow, Chaka Khan. Uh, wow, man, it's, it's been so many. <laughs> Was was there anyone though that you encountered that you were like, whoa, you know, that you were kind of thrilled to meet, or uh, that we actually were in concert with? Um, wow. Uh, we did a show with Luther Vandross, so he didn't turn out to be like I thought he was. <laughs> um. Let me see. Uh, wow. Somebody that I actually wanted to really... Earth, Wind & Fire. We performed, we opened up for Earth, Wind & Fire once. Now, this was after Maurice White was gone. Okay. Uh, but we you worked did. With you know, but however, Maurice White produced one whole half of the album Joyride. So we got to meet him. We got to spend time with him. We got to actually see his studio and record in his studio, which was off the hook, man. We loved it. So, you know, that was one of the highlights of our recording career. Um, you know, Grover being one, but Maurice White and Lenny White also being an, another one. George Duke was another one, you know. Um, which record was Duke on? Do you remember? He was on... Pieces. Okay. The album was called Pieces, and that featured uh, vocals of Maxi Priest. Uh, but the song was called Any Way You Want It. And uh, this guy, Mike Davis, sang that one. But uh, George Duke produced that, and we were, we, we actually went to LA and worked with George Duke in his place with, on that one. What what happened that you guys transitioned from Electra and and Grover and all that to um, Manhattan Records? It looks like or EMI and uh, and changing to having those the Whites produce the record. 
Um, well, first of all, Electra um, and EMI and all of those, that's, if I'm not, let me see. If I'm not mistaken, that's that was all under the same umbrella label, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I wasn't sure because it looked like it was. I know, it's uh, EMI, Angel. Uh... Well, well, the 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 reason we were on the, those labels in the early years is because Bruce Bruce Lundvall was the president of those labels at the time. Not all at the same time, but he Bruce Lundvall moved from Electra to over to EMI, which is the one I guess the Warner Brothers. Uh, under the Warner Brothers umbrella and so he moved us with him basically okay because you guys also went like three years between studio records and so it seemed like there was yeah, a bit of a, um, of a transition yeah that was that was three years that we just didn't have a label uh, Electra decided not to pick up the next option once Bruce Lundvall had moved over and Grover also left uh Electra and moved to another label. I'm not sure which label that was though, but um, he also left the Electra label at that time. And so when Grover left that label, then we were off the label too. Um, even though we didn't record with Grover anymore, there was a three year span where we didn't have a label. And then uh, my father went to uh, Bruce Lundvall over at EMI. And uh, Bruce Lundvall uh, decided to re-sign us again. And there, there you have it. We had another label. So we was back to work, back to writing and back to work. <laughs> and, with the, and with the heavy hitters in that first one with the two whites, Lenny and, and Maurice, like you said. So Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we had Maurice White produce one side and then Lenny White produced the other side, that which was the Joyride album. Now, that record, though, definitely... Like what I would say, phase two for you guys definitely had a different sound. It has some of the like '80s electro funk kind of mm -hmm. uh, and electro R and B kind of like sounds and, and the go go type. Uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Um, uh, that that sound was heavy at that time, and of course, you know, if you've listened to Pieces of a Dream's music all through the years, you know that we try to stay current with what's going on on radio and you know in back then in the clubs and everything um so um we stayed current with with this with the way the sound with the way things sounded and uh, also with trying to develop a new sound for ourselves so did, did they have you guys doing videos too music videos um we did 454 was a video had a video um what can i do had a video and about that time had a video. Did you go out and tour on Joyride? Yes. Yep. We went all over the place. We actually, when that record came out, we went to Germany. We did Japan a few times. Um, and we did all over the states. Uh, we were also doing like some of the island uh, jazz festivals and stuff at that time also. So we were becoming, you know, uh, a name once again with, you know, after the three year span, after the three year break. So that's not easy to do, you know, a lot. No, it's, no, it's not easy musical. to re, but it's, you know, yeah, it's kind of like reinventing the wheel. <laughs> You know, but uh, we reinvented ourselves with a new sound and new producers and a new label. So it was, you know, all hands on deck and let's go for this. And it, it turned out well. It, that you, was, and actually, since then, we've not had a break like that. <laughs> so we've just been able to keep the ball rolling. Yeah, which is phenomenal. I mean, mm -hmm. not a lot of acts can claim that. Yeah. Especially doing both studio and end stage like you guys have. So, so, uh, so much credit uh, for that. Thank you. H had you gone overseas and, and toured abroad before that? Um, uh, yes. When we were with Grover, we went to, um, we did eight cities in Japan. 
Uh, we did, uh, and Tokyo, or was that Yokohama? We did a we did the RX Jazz Festival over in Japan, and that was the first time we had done a stadium with sixty four thousand people in it, and uh, it was awesome, man. It was definitely awesome. So wow, was Hiroshima an apple? Yeah, Hiroshima. We said, let me see if I can name some some of them at least. Tokyo, Nagoya, <laughs> Hiroshima, Osaka. Fukuoka, um, wow, that's five out of eight. <laughs> uh, so you were still a, a teenager and you were already overseas? Yes. Wow. Yep. <laughs> yep. For the first time. Wow. Yep. I was still a teenager. I think I was actually. 18 when that happened. Hmm. So. So you mentioned Lenny White when we're talking about, you know, inspiring drummers. So what was it like actually doing some work with him? Oh, it was great. Um, you know, it, that, I was in my zone in, on that one. Well, with Maurice White, too, because he was a drummer, too. So, you know, I was able to draw information and and just a lot of uh, stuff from the both of them. Um, more from uh, about drums from Lenny White, though. I learned a lot uh, other stuff from Maurice White about producing, you know, um, and and the, the playing of, you know, like kind of like a play, record playing, how to play on a record. From it, because he didn't want a lot of you know hand stuff. He wanted you to play like you're playing on a record, not like you're in concert. And that's what I learned from Maurice White. Lenny White, I learned uh, groove, different grooves from him, because he was a groove master too. And as far as teaching me different beats and stuff, I learned a lot from him. So you know, and it was fun learning from both of them. You know, I I was able to I, I must say I was able to draw stuff from pretty much every producer that we've ever had. You know, uh, as far as different flavors of writing, um, how to use different sounds and stuff. You know, so I was able to take a little bit of something from everybody, and so you know, because back then not a lot of drummers wrote. You know, oh, you didn't know about it. You know what I mean, and I'm one of the uh, and I'm one of the drummers that can write. So and I and I owe that to mostly to my grandfather, but also to a lot of the other guys, a lot of other producers and writers that I've worked with. You know, I was just thinking, uh, Kurt, that Lenny White is also was also a former electric guy at that time. So yeah, you guys probably commiserated about that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yes, he is. Yeah, and Maurice White was on hiatus from Earth, Wind, and Fire at '86 when that came out. Um, they came back in '87, I know, but like he was taking a break too from Earth, Wind, and Fire at that time. Yeah, I think that was when he was first starting to get sick, though, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And um, I mean, he didn't look at her or anything when we met him, but um, uh, I think that's when I started hearing about. He was starting to get sick. Mm -hmm. So you ended up uh, doing. Lenny was also on the next record. Um, makes you wanna. Yes. And yeah, then, I think he actually produced that one by himself, if I'm not mistaken. He and then most of that one. About that time, on that one, I felt like you guys. You talk about keeping current. I felt like on that one, you had some of that New Jack Swing influence kind of coming into some of what you were doing. Yeah, because we had some of Teddy Riley's people working on that one with us. Oh. So, and if I'm not mistaken, Lenny White worked on that one a little bit also. Uh, just a, a few songs. But, um, yeah, we, um, that New Jack Swing was getting becoming very heavy at that time. And so, you know, being kid, the, the kids we were, we wanted to stay current, so, you know. And I think we got a lot of feed. Uh, uh, 
I think we got some negative feedback from that one because I think that our audience thought that we left our roots on that one uh, because we were leaving the quote-unquote smooth jazz genre at that time. Um, and it's not that we were leaving that behind. It was just that we, like us, like I said in the beginning of this interview, we're a versatile group. You know what I mean? We could play from straight ahead swing all the way to R and B. So you know, we were just kind of stretching our legs, trying to do you know something different. And you know, for some people it worked out and they liked it. Some people it didn't work out. Maybe you know they weren't too crazy about it. You know, mm -hmm. so. But, you know, everybody, I think everybody likes us for, at that time, the versatility that we did and wanted us to stay versatile. You know, they wanted, still wanted a little bit of everything on our albums. And I felt at that time we were kind of straddling the fence so we couldn't grab one audience or the other. You know what I mean? And we didn't fully have both of them. So, you know, but uh, where we are right now, I think... Uh, we're we're we found our niche, <laughs> yeah. which is back to the smooth jazz. Basically. <laughs> it's it's challenging it's to not, do that. with 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 a funk ingredient in there. <laughs> Gotta have that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's challenging to do that though, Kurt. You know, you, you look at um, you know a lot of jazz guys did that or attempted to mm -hmm. do it. With you know, you mentioned George Duke and Lenny White's albums and mm -hmm. um, Alphonse Muzan and. Herbie Hancock. I mean, so many tried to do both, keep current, um, I guess, to sell more records, probably. Right. You know, and, and keep food on the table and, and then, you know, keep one foot in the jazz and one in the smooth jazz and mm -hmm. one in the, the current R&B. And it's, it's and hard. See, and, and there's nothing wrong with that because, I mean, some guys, I mean, a lot of those guys are considered contemporary jazz uh, writers and, or and, and there's another name for it that I'm that I'm that escapes me right now. But if you listen to a uh, the writing between, like say between me and James, my partner, on our on our albums, like say the last four albums CDs, um, if you listen to the tracks that I write, you'll notice that I write basically R and B tracks, and I'll put an instrumental head on them you know, instrumental melody to it. Um, I think James is definitely a, a, a truly, I mean, I've written some that would like uh, Anywhere You Are, that that's that particular song. Uh, the song that's on the new one, uh, it's called um, uh, mm, Man, I forgot the song. Um, Smooth Dreams. Okay, those are what I would consider smooth jazz songs. Okay, things like uh, kicking and screaming, um, uh, songs like that. Uh, that was fun. Song. Yeah. Huh? Kicking yeah. and screaming is fun. Yeah, that's the that's that's what I call an R and B track with a instrumental melody. Okay, or or a funk track with an instrumental melody. You know what I mean? Um, all in the song, all in from the CD, all in. That's that's what I would call an R&B track, you know. So with a instrumental head on it. So, you know, that's basically how I write. You know, I don't just come up with just smooth jazz tracks. I write how I what I feel like, you know, at the time, and then put what's necessary on it to do some radio play. <laughs> so. You know, and you know, uh, the song All In, well, Kicking and Screaming is our current single now. The song All In stayed on the chart and the billboard at number two for 13 weeks. So, you know, so, you know, I was proud of that song. So, yeah, know. congratulations on that. Thank you. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm a funketeer at heart, so, <laughs> you know, so that's what I write. But I have fun, because if I can't have fun doing it, then it's not worth doing it, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, well, if you are a funky tear heart, um, you know, well, like you said, you went probably maybe too far astray with the New Jack Swing, but you came back uh, in 93 with In Flight, which was definitely a return to more like organic jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you totally went back the other way. Well, we, we kind of got the message. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got the memo, quote unquote. And uh, went back to what we, what the people wanted to hear from us. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the next one, actually, um, you had the Callaway Brothers also on that next one, right? Mm -hmm. So from Midnight Star. And... Yeah. Um, I think James worked with them more than I did. On Goodbye Manhattan? Yeah, Eva Cassidy sing that one yeah she was a great talent too great talent so you didn't get to actually work much with uh, reggie calloway or vincent calloway um not uh not myself no okay uh i think james did a, lo a lot of that work with them um and some of the stuff like the record company would actually send to the producer for production and not, you know, at back at that time anyway. You know, these days we're we're producing our own stuff now, so we're pretty much, you know, calling the shots with how the song sounds and you know, um and I think back basically at that time we could have actually produced our own stuff. But I think the record company felt that if they're gonna spend thousands of dollars on a record then they want you know, the top names to do it. So, you know, and I have no gripe with that, you know, because the Galloway brothers were definitely great producers. 